You're listening to Talking Smart. The official podcast of the International Association of Sheet Metal, Air, Rail, and Transportation Workers. Dear friends, welcome to the Labor Radio Podcast Network series, highlighting the work of our members. The growing network of over 80 shows in five countries serves as a one-stop shop for audiences looking for labor content and as a resource for labor broadcasters, podcasters, and content producers. My name is Evan Papp, and I'm the host of Empathy Media Lab's podcast on labor, political economy, art, and culture, and we're a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Today, I'm speaking with Michael Blaine, who is the co-host of Talking Smart the podcast of the International Association of Sheet Metal, Air, Rail, and Transportation Workers, a diverse union of more than 200,000 members in the U.S. and Canada. He's also a documentary filmmaker, and he co-produced Dear Walmart, a film that tells the personal stories of workers across America's largest private employer who stood up, stood together, and changed their workplaces and lives for the better. Michael, so good to talk to you. Um, could you tell me a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, and what led you to organized labor? Yeah, thanks for having me on, and uh, glad to be here. Um, so uh, I was born in uh, California, in San Diego. My family moved to the Pacific Northwest when I was 10, and my dad was a carpenter uh, in California and also in Washington State. He eventually became a foreman and then a superintendent and was running these large jobs uh, in and around Seattle. So I was, I was familiar with uh, the building trades and with the labor movement through him. Um, I actually, um, I transferred colleges and in between transferring, I, I went and worked uh, for the laborers on a number of uh, union jobs in Seattle. And so that was my first um, union experience. Um, Prior to that, you know, I sort of got my, I guess, class consciousness. I, I worked at a Chevron in high school. That was my first job back in the days when, you know, we would check oil and wipe windows and all that sort of thing. And that was very unpleasant experience with a, with a nasty boss and low pay. And, you know, I was 16, 17, started to sort of understand a little bit about how, how things worked. And, you know, then in college, I learned a bit more. Um, I was in the laborers for a bit, and I, I just got very interested in uh, class issues, um, income inequality, even at the time, um, the decline of the labor movement. I, I started doing a lot of uh, freelance writing, was writing about um, unions and organized labor in Seattle for a, a monthly publication. And then I got a job at, a contract job at Microsoft. Um, writing content for Encarta Encyclopedia, which before Wikipedia, these were CDs and Encarta was basically what destroyed World Book and Encyclopedia Britannica. And then it went online, but then it sort of got surpassed by Wikipedia. Anyways, I thought it's like, okay, I can work at Microsoft for a while, but I thought I'd be working for Microsoft. It turns out we were, you know, we were all laundered through these temp agencies that did nothing to find the job. Um, 
really offered no benefits, no paid time off. So we were working in Microsoft offices for managers with Microsoft emails, but we were um, so-called permatemps. And uh, we started, you know, channeling our gripes. I had connections in the labor movement and new folks in the Seattle area from writing about it and being interested in it. And we connected with the King County Labor Council and started talking about, hey, you know, could we, could we do something here as, as contractors working for Microsoft to organize contract workers who technically are employers of these other companies, but are working at Microsoft. And from that, we, we formed an organization called the Washington Alliance of Technology Workers or WashTech. Um, I ended up, uh, we got support from the CWA and affiliated with them. And I ended up going on staff with CWA as a organizer with CWA organizing tech workers in Seattle. So that was sort of the progression. I was a journalism major in college, sort of went from interest in labor, writing about it, um, and then you know, directly experiencing this dichotomy working for, at the time, one of the most successful and profitable companies on the planet um, that had this whole you know, second tier workforce. It was like 40% of its, its staff that it considered non-employees but they were, you know, doing all of this work to directly contribute to. So I, I think it has, you know, all sorts of resonance for what's going on with Uber and DoorDash and all that kind of stuff now. Um, and then uh, uh, from there, I uh, worked for um, a company that did a lot of work, web work and kind of web action stuff for unions. And then I went to work for SEIU in DC, moved across the country worked for them for seven years in their communications department. And I've basically worked in a different capacity on a lot of different campaigns, um, earned sick pay campaign in Maryland. I worked for Layuna uh, for a while uh, in Mid-Atlantic. Um, I've done a bunch of uh, freelance uh, work for NEA and I came on staff uh, with SMART um, just last year. Yeah, you have an incredibly diverse array of experiences with unions. I mean, from the National Education Association, as you said, the NEA, CWA, LIUNA, uh, SEIU, and um, you know your background in journalism and then filmmaking too. Could you talk a little bit about your film, Dear Walmart, and what led you to want to make that film? Oh yeah, I forgot to mention, I also did a bunch of uh, contract video work for UFCW, uh, which was uh, Dear Walmart. Um, that basically started with, uh, I had just, I was just coming out of doing a, an MA program at American University in uh, producing for film and video. And um, a friend of mine from SEIU uh, called me up and said, hey, we're gonna be doing a, a flash mob at a Walmart and we wanna do a video of it. Would you be interested in that? And I said, sure, sounds fun. And I recruited a couple of fellow AU students and we went, and this was in Laurel, Maryland. And uh, it was awesome. Um, there was, I don't know, 50 people and uh, we, everybody kind of dispersed throughout the store, sort of undercover, like they were shopping. Um, and then they rolled in this like portable amp and a guy with a saxophone and a trumpet uh, and like a, drums. And they, they just kind of rolled in and started playing. And then all of these people that had been pretending to shop converged and they started playing a, a Walmart version of Aretha Franklin's Respect. And so we shot that and it went kind of viral, ended up getting several hundred thousand hits on YouTube. 
And then uh, UFCW asked if I'd like to do some more video work for the Dear Walmart campaign. And so I was basically embedded with them for about two years. And this was when that campaign was really um, uh, vibrant and there were uh, Walmart workers were striking really for the first time ever. This was around 2011, 2012, 2013. And did a lot of you know, short online videos for them that were very helpful in them reaching workers and getting the message out. But you know, always wanted, kept thinking, there's like deeper stories here of, of these workers and, and the transformations that they are experiencing when they stand up, many of them for the very first time and join together with other workers, not in a union per se, right? But they were, they were taking collective action and, and building an organization, a worker-led, you know, grassroots, um, uh, you know, on the ground organization and that was really powerful. And so the documentary idea was, why don't, we, why don't we follow a few of these workers from different geographies, gender, ethnicity, that reflects the diversity of this movement and tell their stories. And so the film is really about, it's about the campaign, it's about the movement, but it's really about the, the transformations that these workers experienced in standing up and standing together. So I think, you know, any retail worker or Amazon warehouse worker or non-union worker that is sort of wondering how this works or is tired of just complaining and, you know, in the break room, like, how do you do it, right? How can you, how can you build something and change things for better? And it takes tremendous courage uh, for these workers to go on camera and to go out and, and put their, their job at risk, essentially, because, you know, these Walmart uh, employers are obviously, you know, they can fire these employees at any time. And um, yeah, that was actually the subject of, of many, many uh, unfair labor practice charges uh, against Walmart, some of which were settled favorably. There was one, I don't remember all the details and don't want to get this wrong, but there was one big one that was more or less settled favorably. And then the NLRB, the composition changed and the decision was reversed, right? It had to do with illegal retaliation and termination of workers who in, uh, engaged in strikes. And this is during the Obama-Biden administration to remind the audience as well. Well, th that was happening under the Obama-Biden. The decision may have flipped under Trump. Okay. I don't again, I don't wanna get the details wrong, but it, it basically, there was one that was favorable and then it was reversed. It, it's just so frustrating to have this narrative about Walmart and the Walton family. And I believe the 2017 tax cuts, the three or four members of the Walton family got something over $100 billion from that tax cut of the $1.3 trillion tax cut that was given, I think over 80%, you know, went to the top of the top. And Oh yeah, there's these, there's these workers. These workers four. are getting these workers are getting uh, their foods subsidized, their healthcare subsidized, and they're not getting paid a living wage yet. The people on the top are getting socialized. It, it's the most frustrating narrative and, and reality in, in public policy, and it, it's it's just where are the leaders that can actually represent the workers? Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, American taxpayers are, are subsidizing. Walmart's low wages and their their poor labor standards because a lot of 
a significant percentage of Walmart employees are on some sort of form of public assistance, and that's ultimately paid for by all of us. So, you know, you can get, you know, a dozen socks for five bucks, <laughs> but you're going to be paying for Medicaid and, you know, ER uh, services for unemployed workers and all of this stuff down the road. Yeah, it's, it's disgusting. But this is why uh, you do what you do. And there's a lot of people who aren't aware of labor news. Uh, it's not promoted oftentimes in a lot of the corporate media. So could you talk a bit why um, you think that it's important to cover labor and, um, and, and what people should learn from labor news? Yeah, well, exactly that that you said. I mean, you know, most daily newspapers used to have a labor reporter, um, or they they had at least a business reporter who covered the labor beat, right? With um, you know, downsizing and corporate, you know, mergers and hedge funds buying up newspapers and and media companies, uh, there's been you know staff cuts across the board. But a lot of times, some of the first people to go were labor reporters or, or people who covered that. So what, what you get is, you know, nobody that's really dedicated to, to the issue, not just, you know, and not, I don't mean unions, right? I mean, labor talking broadly, right? Issues that affect working people. Um, it's just not a priority for most uh, newspapers or TV stations or radio. So, um, and also, you know, having gone to journalism school myself that you know the people that are in that have journalism degrees or go into media it's sort of uh it, it's very hard for working class people to 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 get into those jobs professionally right if you can't you know your freshman or sophomore year in the summer if you can't go work an unpaid internship at a newspaper you're going to be that much behind all the people that can't that don't have to work and then your junior year, your senior year, by the time you graduate, if you don't have all these internships, you're just not competitive to go get uh, a job or another unpaid internship at a bigger outlet like the Washington Post or NBC or something like that. So it, it really, the whole system, it filters out working class people and working class voices. And the people that are, you know, oftentimes that are in these jobs, they don't have that experience of working at a Chevron when they were 16 or like I, I fished in Alaska for a couple of years. Um, I worked as a laborer, I've dug ditches, I've, I've bust tables, I've waited on tables, I've been a messenger delivery person. Most people who are working in journalism don't have that background and, and they got there because they could take these unpaid internships. So their whole perspective is you know, upper middle class. And, and so I think that's a problem and it's really hard to get working class voices out there. So the more that we can produce our own media especially to the extent that it's sort of been democratized and the gatekeepers have been removed for better and worse, right? You can see that for worse with just kind of what goes out on social media that people read and, and consider to be news and the, all, the algorithms from Facebook that sort of self-select so that you're just seeing stuff that already, already reinforces what you already believe. But it's just all the more important that unions and working people have their own media that they're producing and getting out there and podcasts are a, a great forum that is, you know, can be um, kind of a more casual or, you know, informal medium where you're having a conversation about these issues and, um, 
it's engaging and it's something that people can listen to when they're driving to work or at lunch or, or whenever they want, but it's, uh, it's a great way to reach working people at, with news and information and opinions that they're just not going to get from a lot of media outlets. Well, that's a perfect segue into talking about your show, Talking Smart. And could you talk about what it's about, what the format is, and what you hope to achieve um, in each episode? Talking Smart is the podcast of the International Association of Sheet Metal, Air, Rail, and Transportation Workers, or SMART. We represent, we represent over 200,000 uh, members in sheet metal uh, installation, maintenance, and production, and also rail and transit workers um, uh, across the United States and Canada. And we created um, our show because our membership asked for it. A lot of them were listening to podcasts and um, uh, said, hey, why don't we, you know, why don't you guys do, why don't we do one for SMART? It's a new way of facilitating communication across all levels of the organization. And the general president of SMART is a major supporter and visionary in this form of communication and in support of our efforts. So it's, it's got the full backing of the international. And we're also, um, several of our locals, well, one of our locals, uh, Local 110 in Kentucky, they have a, a great podcast uh, hosted by Jeremy Waugh, who's also a member of this network. And we, we plug his podcast on our podcast um, pretty much every episode now. Um, and Talking Smart and that podcast is inspiring some of our other locals to want to start their own podcasts. So we actually just had a, a training this week. Um, it was for organizers, but there was a big uh, communications piece to that. And there was a, a segment that Jeremy led that was all about how smart locals can start their own podcast. What's involved, equipment, how do you do it? How do you get gas? How do you get it out there? Um, and all that sort of thing. So we're, we're not only doing Talking Smart, but we're working to build capacity within the union to empower our members and locals to produce their own podcasts. Very cool. Do you also focus on some of the national issues of policy to try to get everyone at least on the same page within the union? Um, or or is, it, is it more kind of focused on the mechanics of the union as you're putting out this podcast? I'm, I'm curious. No, I, I we, absolutely, we focus on national issues. I mean, we always, we always try to have, you know, a hook that has to do with the building trades or sheet metal or transportation in every episode. And we, you know, we talk about issues that directly affect our members in every episode. But a lot of those issues are also issues that affect other uh, members of other building trades of other unions and just working people across the United States and Canada. So for example, we had, you know, several episodes shortly after the pandemic um, broke out and we sort of were all in lockdown mode. Um, we had a, a number of episodes that really were focused on that, on workplace safety issues, on shortages of PPEs, on things that our um, locals were doing to ensure that members were safe on the job. And, you know, what were they doing to get adequate PPEs? Um, what were they doing for, uh, what were they and our signatory contractors doing for members who got sick or who were exposed to somebody who was COVID, COVID positive? And we were, you know, highlighting stories of um, some of our signatory employers and locals that were really, you know, doing, you know, taking the high road and, you know, giving people paid time off and, you know, 
and allowing them to um, ensure that they were they were safe uh, before coming back to work. Um, we just did an episode um, with our director of government affairs um, and our uh, national legislative director for our transportation division, talking about what comes after January 6th. So, you know, we address the the insurrection at the Capitol, the the attacks by domestic terrorists on on our Congress, but we also talked about what happened in the election, what does it mean, what happened in the Georgia Senate races, what does that mean, what did we do to mobilize our members? We talked about that a little bit about you know what we did to get out the vote and to help ensure that as many members as possible were registered and voted. And our members, smart members, vote at a significantly higher rate than the average populace in the United States, which is a testament to the work that we're doing to communicate with them and, and the data tools that we have access to to see who's registered. Um, have they requested an absentee ballot? Did they mail it in yet? And we just keep following up with people. Um, and then we also talked about you know, what does democratic control of the Senate, as tenuous as that may be, what does that mean for labor? What does that mean for our members? What does that mean for rail safety? Um, a big issue for our transportation uh, members, our railroad, railroad workers is the, this question of two person crews. Um, and under Obama, there had been proposed regulation that would require two people on all, uh, two crew members on all freight trains, a, a conductor and an engineer. Um, and the industry is pushing for one. They think we're good, you know, they say we're good. We, we have all the automation and, and these tools that will ensure that, you know, there'll, there'll be no safety issues, but the facts just don't bear that out. And if something happens on a train, something happens to that one crew member, if, if, if there's some mechanical failure, right? You have one crew member, if, some, if there's a health issue, a heart attack or something with that one crew member, then you've got nobody running the train, right? That, that's what the industry is pushing for. Um, under Trump, they that's reversed- that's, that's insane, by the way. Yeah, yeah. And there's, you know, huge trains and, and the trains are getting longer and longer, right? You know, miles long trains that, are, that can uh, go through small towns and block things, you know, including emergency first responders, you know, fire, right? They can block intersections for you know a very long time, and and then if there's an accident or something, that impacts response to that also. There was also legislation that was passed uh, to have like a positive uh, train control that had sensors, I believe, on these rail systems. It was passed over like maybe even the '90s, and it was supposed to be put in place, you know, in the the 2000s. And they still haven't put it in place, even though the legislation said it should be put in place. And then maybe they got um, a waiver through a lot of the rail uh, systems. But it, just right. simple, simple like measures of safety, they're they're able to say it costs too much. <laughs> it's well, to be honest, I'm not totally familiar with all the details of the train legislation. So I know that you know positive train control is is a there's debate around that, right? But it, you know, on the whole, the, the employers, the rail employers are pushing for automation and technology. And we, we can do this with less humans, which means job losses and furloughs, of course. And they're, they're pushing these safety arguments that are just not proven, right? That, you know, they're saying, trust, trust us, basically. 
in the meantime, let us lay off these people and we wanna run trains with just one person. Um, Trump um, reversed the Obama, the proposed regulation and they, they, were, they were, you know, signing off on one person crews. So what we had been doing is, is getting this done at the state level, legislatively, state by state. So for example, in Nevada, uh, Governor Sisolak there signed off on a, a two person crew bill in the state of Nevada. And uh, Washington State uh, had one, there's a handful of other states that had this. So, you know, while they're doing this at the federal level, we're trying to make it, you know, work and protect workers and protect communities and protect jobs at the state level. So then what they were doing is uh, the rail employers were trying to pass preemption regulations or laws that would, you know, preempt states from being able to pass, you know, pass laws that would do that. So at every, up, you know, every corner, they're trying to sort of get around it. Um, under, uh, under Biden, um, well, under uh, the Moving Forward Act, which is one of the pieces of legislation, <clears throat> excuse me, that passed the, the House uh, under the Trump administration and was blocked or you know, never even heard in the Senate. It was blocked by Republicans. Um, the Moving Forward Act would make two-person crew the law of the land. It would get rid of any preemption efforts and it would do a whole uh, bunch of other things to uh, ensure that our railroad workers are safe and also transit workers who have been experiencing um, rising levels of assault and um, you know things like you know being spit on and and assaulted on buses and there's just not really the framework to effectively deal with that right now and uh, the Trump administration was was just making it worse on the whole so how do you walk that fine line in the national union where you have members that may not agree with the political parties that you're supporting uh, how do you communicate to them, th those members, so that they don't feel disaffected and just want to like drop out and get out of the union? Well, that, that's, that's a great question because uh, SMART, like uh, a lot of the building trades unions, uh, a significant percentage of our members are Trump supporters. Um, and what we do is, is we, we focus on the issues, right? And, and not the personalities, not, not the latest outrageous thing that Trump said, or, you know, whatever personal thing about Joe Biden, right? We, we very much try to focus on the issues. We know that two-person crew is a top priority issue for our transportation members. This is what, this is the position of the Trump administration. This is what they were doing. This is what was happening with the Federal Railway Administration under Trump. This is what Joe Biden says he supports. He explicitly says he supports two-person crew. He said that to our membership in a video that he recorded uh, for SMART. So if you want two-person crew, you know this is one reason why we're supporting Joe Biden because he, he backs us on this issue that is a top priority. Same with pensions, pension reform, protecting pensions. Um, there's been sort of competing legislation out there um, to, to help prop up some of the pension plans that are really in trouble, which is ours is not. Um, but, um, you know, they can all sort of affect each other, right, as a whole. So that's an important issue. And we would outline, you know, this is what uh, Republicans want to do and, you know, supported by the Trump administration around pension stuff. And this is what the Democrats want to do. Um, there was a, a big issue last year around 
industry recognized apprenticeship programs or IRAPs where the um, Trump administration was supporting these the, the idea that employers could do their own separate apprenticeship programs that would not be held to the same standards as union apprenticeships. It was, it was basically an attack on the entire union apprenticeship system so that they could put people through so-called apprenticeships um, that would not necessarily be trained to the same level, would not have the same emphasis on safety, and then they could go out there and say that they're, they're a journey person. So, you know, we, um, we oppose that vehemently along with the rest of the building trades and the AFL-CIO. And in fact, the letter campaign to the Department of Labor that we all did around that um, generated like over 300,000 letters to DOL, which was by far the highest number of letters that had ever been sent to the DOL on, on one issue. Um, so, you know, I think, and, and some people, it doesn't matter. For some people there, the issue they vote on is gonna be a so social issue or guns. And they think that Biden's gonna take their guns away. We, we actually produced a video from uh, one of our members in Pennsylvania uh, who's a, a gun owner and enthusiast and a, a Biden voter uh, who was showing some of his weapons and saying, I've been a hunter and a gun, a sporting gun owner for decades. Um, Joe Biden is not gonna, you can't eat your guns. Joe Biden's not gonna take your gun away, <laughs> right? I'm voting for Joe Biden. So, um, you know, we, we, you know, we, we focus on the issues, right? How, how, how are you bread and butter. affected? The bread and butter, you know, it's the economic yeah. issues ultimately and the safety issues. And, and we, you know, we also, we endorse Republicans sometimes, right? It's not, if they, if they support us, if they support uh, issues that are important to us, um, we endorse them. There's one of our locals in, in San Diego, um, Eastern San Diego County leans much more Republican and Trump um, than around the city of San Diego, but a lot of our members are in Eastern County. Um, so the local down there and sending out their endorsement sheet um, communicating with members, they didn't mention uh, that we had endorsed Trump at the, you know, at the national level because they didn't want uh, their members, their Trump supporting members to just throw away the whole endorsement sheet. And what they focused on were the down ballot issues, the county council stuff and the city council stuff that really impacted them and their ability to get um, support for PLAs on big jobs in San Diego County. And PLA is? A project labor agreement, um, which is a agreement between employers and uh, unions about you know, area wages and standards on jobs uh, funded by public money a lot of times, especially. Um, so um, there was a Republican there was one Republican candidate who said that he, he would uh, never uh, support PLAs ever. Um, and there was another uh, Republican candidate who was trailing, who uh, supported PLAs and he actually reached out to a lot of Democratic voters. And we endorsed that candidate, the local endorsed him, and he ended up coming from behind and winning and said, in fact, to the local, you know, if, if you guys hadn't, um, endorsed me and backed me and, and turned out for me, I don't think I would have won. So yeah, that's party affiliation is less important to us than do they support working people and uh, the issues that are a priority to us.
So as a member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, uh, could you talk a little bit about uh, how you heard about it and why this network is important? Um, I think I heard about it from Chris Garlock, probably. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I'm almost certain it was him. Um, I think the network is important because it, it's good to see what other people are doing, right? And, and discuss, you know, similar challenges, brainstorm things, talk about, you know, gear, you know, what microphone are you using? What platform are you using to host your, your podcast? What are you using to edit it? Uh, but also content issues. Um, how do you, how do you find guests? Um, sort of organizational issues. How, how do you, how do you build support for, for doing a podcast at all you know, inside your union, uh, whether it's an international or a local. Um, so all of those things are beneficial and, and kind of just like, just like musicians, right? Listening to other, other people's songs, you can, you get ideas and you can kind of riff off of what other people are doing, um, you know, borrow a line or two, <laughs> right? But, you know, listening to other people's stuff gives you ideas and also you can mutually uh, support and promote each other. So I, I think having, you know, the local 110, smart local 110 podcast, um, plugging that in our episodes makes the whole package stronger, right? And also when we send out emails to our members about our new episodes, we're now plugging his at the bottom with a logo and a link to his latest episode. And we'd love to keep adding more, you know, more links at the bottom of those emails to plug all our other, our other podcasts. Well, as new uh, locals develop their podcasts, you know, definitely, I hope they join the network and we all cross promote and it's one big family in that way. Um, so that's, that's great to hear too, that you're, you're having a lot of growth internally. So in closing, looking into the future of organized labor, where do you see opportunity and hope? Um, well, I think the Biden administration brings us some hope, at least uh, for the next four years, at least for the next two years, <laughs> while we have control of the Senate, um, perhaps. But I mean, just the difference is just night and day, not only with the Trump administration, but also with the Obama, the Bush and Clinton administrations for that matter, in terms of what he's, you know, what he's already doing that's pro-labor, purging all the union busters from the NLRB right out of the gate, um, explicitly talking about unions, talking about the importance of unions, um, talking about building back better with unions. I mean, no US president has really done that or, or talked like that or you know, taken action like that uh, in forever. Um, he's supporting the um, Protecting the Right to Organize Act or PRO Act. If you remember, there was uh, the Employee Free Choice Act or EFCA that was uh, proposed under the Obama administration, very similar legislation. Um, Obama never really supported it. Like it, it didn't move because the administration, in, in part, they, they never really backed it. So I think that's reason for hope in the short term. I think also, um, you know, it's kind of the uh, two sides of the coin thing, the record and rising income inequality is, is a bad thing, but I, I think it's, you know, people are, are really starting to see how that impacts our country, how it impacts them, how it impacts our democracy, 
I mean, the fact, I mean, it was horrible before the pandemic and getting worse. And, you know, you know, billionaires have just enriched themselves by, you know, many times over during the pandemic. So what, what, what does that mean, right? What, kind, what does that mean for what kind of economy we have? And the fact that, you know, hardworking people's labor and the value that they create is not being shared fairly. And that, that's, that trend has been going in the wrong direction for decades and it's gotten even worse in the last year. So I think um, the Occupy movement sort of changed the narrative a little bit, 99%, 1%. That influenced things like um, the deer, the, uh, um, our Walmart campaign and Fight for 15 and these other low wage worker organizing. It also influenced Black Lives Matter, which there's a, you know, a civil rights dimension to, to economic justice, obviously. So I think all of those things are, give us some hope. And I think um, young people, right? I, I think attitudes about unions are, are changing and going in a more positive direction. And it's you know, overwhelmingly positive now in, in surveys that come out about support for unions. And if you, if you could join a union right now, would you like more than 60 million Americans answer yes, right? But you know, why are they not able to do that? Is because the playing field is so uneven and, and the game is so skewed in favor of employers and union busting lawyers and all of this that they can they can break the law, they can break the rules with impunity, and and typically they just get a slap on the wrist. So there's hope that that, that could change. Um, there's there's more sort of grassroots bubbling up. There's more awareness of the economic injustice in this country, and, and people are sick of it, right? And you know, I think it's it's part of what was behind MAGA, right? And and Trumpism. That there's clearly there's an economic um, angle to that, and people that feel like they've been left behind by the global economy. Their their jobs maybe have been outsourced, offshored, manufacturing plants closed down. But when you, you know, when you can't speak to that real economic pain in a way that gives people hope that they can address by joining together in a positive way instead of blaming others for that, you know, it doesn't, it's just not going to work, I don't think. So I, I think there's hope that, you know, I don't know. It's kind of the best of times and the worst of times. Right? <laughs> They're hopeful, but there's a lot of crazy stuff still going on out there. Well, Michael Blaine, all the work that you're doing is also, you know, making me more hopeful and uh, look forward to continuing uh, to work with you and see you in the trenches. Great. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. brother because if you do you can hear their voices still calling from across the years and they're crying across the ocean they're crying across the land and they will until we all come to understand none of us are free none of us are free None of us are free. None of us are free. None of us are free. 
Join together. 